Our Father, as your people, we rejoice that the mercy seat is still open. It is mercy that we long for, O God. It is mercy we found and mercy we continue to need. We thank you, O God, that you are predisposed to love and to save sinners. Because were that not so, not a one of us would be able to stand everlastingly in your presence and call and to think of ourselves as forgiven. But now we can. Now we have been declared righteous based on the finished and accomplished work of Jesus Christ. We are yours. You are ours. We are hidden with Christ in God. And all of that was accomplished by a God who is predisposed to love sinners and to restore them. We bless you, O God, and rejoice in the salvation that you have wrought, in that you, by your sovereign spirit, have wooed us to the foot of Jesus' cross. It is there that we cry again for greater mercy still. Our Father, we continue to pray that you will give us wisdom as we try to lead a family, wisdom for parenting children, wisdom for making business decisions, wisdom for exercising our gifts for the advancement of the kingdom. We are a people who long to be useful to the King of Kings for the advancement of the cause of Jesus Christ. But show us how best to do that. Our Father, I pray that you'll show the leadership of this church how best to spend the monies that we're about to receive. Every dime of them need to be stretched. Every dime need to be used for one purpose and one purpose only. That being the glory of the thrice holy God. So, Father, lead every decision maker that we might please you in how we seek to reach an unchurched world. We pray for our president and pray that you'll continue to give him wisdom as there's so much going on in the world today. Father, we want to be salt in this world that is filled with putrefaction. We want to be light in a world that is overcome by darkness. And Lord, if nowhere else in this city of Memphis might people be able to find hope at Gracie Van. But I thank you, Father, that that's not so. That there are churches all over this city that are lighthouses to this community. Use us all to advance the kingdom of your Son and our Savior. Now accept our gifts, Father, as small or as large as they may be. The issue is not the size. The issue is the size of the sacrifice, the size of the heart, the size of what's left after we've given. Oh God, use it. Use it all to glorify King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them with me, if you will, to the book of Job. <clears throat> Job chapter 1. And let me read to you seven verses out of what is called the prologue of Job. Job chapter 1. And verse 6, you follow as I read. 
Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came along, came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now... Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. You might remember, if you were here last week, that I introduced what I'm calling a, um, kind of a, my best shot at making the summer enjoyable by trying to uh, draw from the book of Job some lessons that I hope will help. Uh, this is by no means a study of the book of Job. I'm not smart enough to uh, pull off a study of the book of Job. But it is some things that I do think stand out rather glaringly from the book that I think can be profitable for us in the midst of uh, some of the things that you and I have to face. I say they stand out glaringly. Very honestly, the one this morning, which is perhaps the most esoteric of, of all nine of the lessons, um, maybe doesn't appear so glaringly, but I want you to see it. I want you to see something that I hope uh, when seen or one scene will, um, will change the way you think. And my friends, nothing is more practical than my changing the way you think. That is, if I can bring our thinking into conformity with the, the Word of God, nothing will help more. I promise you, nothing will help us more than in when we think uh, about all of life but particularly the difficulties that we face, through the grid of the Word of God. So that's what I want to do. I want to introduce you to something this morning that uh, maybe you've never seen. And if you haven't, I think it's going to help. Hang in there with me. Most of what happened to Job is known to all of you. Um, all of those sudden calamities that befall him are, are almost too numerous and too horrific and, and, and almost unbelievable to repeat. Suffice it to say that his whole world caved in overnight. He lost everything in one fell swoop. And his entire family of ten grown children were wiped out by a desert whirlwind. Um, if that weren't enough, of course, it certainly is the worst part of it, that he lost his entire family. That was only the worst part, because there was much more. He lost his fortune. 
He lost his health. And, and maybe something that could have been the most painful of them all, he lost the respect and the support of his wife, who, as you may recall, tells him that he really ought to go out and curse God and die. But Job doesn't. He resists his wife's counsel. And in that, ladies and gentlemen, if for nothing else, he in that is a hero. Um, people, countless people, have committed suicide with uh, far less provocation than, had, than Job had. Uh, but he stood or withstood all of those things and refused to curse his God. Now, guys, um, when you consider all that he experienced, you have to you have to agree, I think, that few of us uh, have ever called or, or experienced in our lives the kind of suffering, the intensity of this suffering, the scope of the suffering, as did Job. Uh, you know, some of the time I, I hear people talking about, you know, I feel like Job and I want to say, well, for, for heaven's sakes, why? Well, I lost my job. I am not trying to tell you that losing a job is not tough. That is tough. But I'm simply saying that few of us suffer as egregiously as did Job. But does that mean that because we haven't suffered as much... That we, as ordinary people, uh, going through the ordinary setbacks and struggles of our lives, cannot somehow identify with Job. I'm not saying that. Very honestly, ladies and gentlemen, if you've ever been in pain, I think we all share this much. When you're in pain, you want less of it. No matter what it is. No matter whether it's small compared to Job's or equal to Job's, when we're in pain, our greatest desire is to somehow reduce that pain. Well, Job in that regard is a marvelous hero. And as I hope to demonstrate by the time we're finished, Job endured what he had to face without the benefit of knowing a very critical piece of information. It's a piece of information, a critical piece of information that was not available to Job, but is available to us, which, which ought to strengthen us in the midst of whatever it is that we face. Job faced things, ladies and gentlemen, and survived and persevered without a significant piece of the puzzle. I'm going to give you that significant piece of the puzzle this morning. But we know it at Job's expense. Job didn't know it. And he survived. By the way, I'm not suggesting by any stretch that I'm going to give you all the pieces of the puzzle. But I am going to give you one. And it's one that I think will make an amazing difference in the, in the way that you and I handle our difficulty. Hands down, ladies and gentlemen, without any competition, the one question that we always ask in the midst of the difficulty is why? Now, you know that. Why? 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 And I, I want you to know that very seldom am I able to answer anywhere close to that question. I mean, you know, I, I, I listen to them ask, but I don't have much to say. There is a mystery 
There is a mystery in the book of Job. There is a mystery in the issue of suffering that will never fully and completely be resolved. But part of the mystery is resolved. Part of the mystery ought not be mystery. And ladies and gentlemen, do, don't you agree that if I can give you just a little bit of your answer or, or your, an answer to the question that you ask about why, I, that'll help. We don't, we don't do real well with mystery. We want to know all the facts. We don't do well with these kind of mysteries that are presented to us like this in the book of Job. Oh, oh, we have a life that is full of smaller mysteries. You know, there is the uh, the mystery of the washing machine. You know, you stick six pairs of socks in the washing machine and 30 minutes later out comes six socks, none of which match each other. There is the uh, the mystery of the traffic lane. Whatever lane you choose, it's going to go the slowest. There is the mystery of the, um, the open-faced peanut butter and jelly sandwich on carpet. And whether it falls face down or face up depends upon the cost of the carpet. <laughs> we've got Bigfoot. We've got the abominable snowman. We've got UFOs. We've got the Bermuda Triangle. We've got all, we've got headaches for which the medical community, 80% of our headaches, they have not given us a reason for them, those things yet. You know, life does mystify. Sometimes it seems like life is a violin solo and I'm wearing ski gloves. But I'm not talking about that kind of mystery. Because very honestly, ladies and gentlemen, that stuff pales in insignificance next to this stuff. And when we're hurt. If somebody would only give us some answers. Well, I'm going to give you one. I am, ladies and gentlemen. That's a bold claim. But I'm going to give you part of the puzzle. And and I am arrogant enough to think that if you get it, it's going to help. I promise it's going to help. So hang with me, ladies and gentlemen. You know as well as I that the God that is described in this Bible is full of mystery. And as we watch Job, if you've ever read the book, you watch him as he endures 36 chapters of no information, or at least bad information. And in the end of the book, even after chapter 42, Job still doesn't have a comprehensive answer to the question why. And that's one of the bigger problems that we face in difficulty, is, is, the, is the mystery, is the why of suffering. And to be frank, the book of Job doesn't answer the question. Um, Job doesn't get a comprehensive answer either. So I'm suggesting that our problem gets bigger because we get no answers. We're about to get some. No, you're about to get one. And, and you may walk out of here saying, well, that was a tiny piece of the puzzle. Well... Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. But a tiny piece of the puzzle is better than no part of the puzzle at all. Wouldn't you agree? Folks, chapter 1. In chapter 1, we find in chapter 1 something very important. A very important principle concerning the mystery of evil.
And if you get it, it ought to help you tons when it comes to our own individual struggles. You ready? It's in here. Let's take a look at it. Um, there is something that's going on that I read you here this morning in chapter 1 that I think, as I said, will make a big difference. And it has to do with the conversation that takes place in the supernatural, in the heavenlies. It's a conversation that takes place between God and Satan. Now, to understand that conversation or something about it, you've got to know something about Satan. Now, guys, before I jump into that, I read this in, and when I was you know, preparing for this sermon. I found this statement by a sociologist that I've never heard of. I've never heard of this guy's name. His name is Robert Muth now. I don't know if you ever heard of Robert Muth now. But um, Robert Muth now suggests that whether or not one believes in the existence of an objective devil depends on their social status. I want to read you a quote from this sociologist. He says this, and I quote, Look at the parking lot outside your church. If you see Lexuses and Cadillacs, you won't hear Satan preached inside. If you see a lot of pickup trucks, you will. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what's in our parking lot. I have a good idea. But I'm telling you, I'm going to preach as if there were a lot of pickup trucks out there. Because we're going to try to bend the curve a little bit, ladies and gentlemen, because I don't care. I don't know what it is that you drive. But if you don't believe in the existence of an objective, real, personal devil, then you don't believe your Bible. But there's some things that you need to know about it. First of all, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Don't turn. You can look at it this afternoon. But in that text, it says that Satan roams the earth seeking someone whom he may devour. Remember that text? That's 1 Peter 5, 8. My point is this. What he is described as doing in the New Testament, you see him doing in Job chapter 1. It is his lifelong occupation. He does it the Old Testament. He does it the New Testament. He roams the earth. He's been doing it since the days of Job. Ladies and gentlemen, and do you realize that chronologically, the oldest book in the Bible is the book of Job? So, I mean, in terms of when it was written. So, in terms of from Job until Peter, that's what he does. He roams the earth seeking somebody to devour. He's doing it now. He's doing it right now. That's the first thing. The second thing you need to know. You know as well as I... That you matter to God. We know that. But here's a sober thought. You also matter to the devil. Job sure did. And here's a third, even scarier thought. There are times. There are times. When everything that you own and everything that you possess is not in the hands of God, but in the hands of the adversary with God's set limits. Now, having said that, 
I want to take you to the conversation that Satan has with God. And it begins in verse 9. It begins with a sneer. It, it, I mean, if I were acting this out as, this, as if I were the devil, I wouldn't want to do that, though, because plenty of you think I'm the devil already. Um, but if I were acting this out, I would, know how, I, would know how to, I would know how to say this. I can see Satan saying it now. <laughs> do you think Job fears you for nothing? <laughs> do, you, do you see the implication in that, ladies and gentlemen? Do you hear it? it it's right there in verse 9. Does Job fear God for nothing? I mean, the, the, the implication is very clear, ladies and gentlemen. If, if I could paraphrase this conversation, it's as if Satan is saying, God, you are infatuated with the idea that man loves you for your own self. But he never has and he never will. Take Job, for instance, God. He simply loves you because of the nice things that you give him. But if you take away those things, he will curse you to your face. And then we will prove that no man has or ever will love you because of who you are. No man, God, loves you for your own sake. Now that, ladies and gentlemen, is key. That is an accusation that Satan makes that is being proved either true or false in this book. That is the key assumption for the understanding of the rest of this book. The re- that little conversation that you have there, ladies and gentlemen, makes very clear that the struggle in the book of Job is not a struggle between God and Job. It is a struggle between God and Satan. It is a celestial battle fought on earth. It's, it's, it's sort of a duel between good and evil. And, and where is this, this monumental contest taking place? Where is it that these two inscrutable foes meet? Job. Ladies and gentlemen, I say to you, the explanation of this whole book lies in the fact that God and Satan made a battleground of Job's soul without Job's permission. Without any warning... Job's life is suddenly turned into a desperate havoc. And God keeps out of sight and doesn't say one word to let him know that he even exists. That's part of the gamble. Part of the deal is God has got to remain silent while this whole thing is taking place and unfolding in the life of his child. Gang, in this book... God's omnipotence is not in question. Reluctantly, but he does it anyway, Satan has to check in and get permission to do anything that he does. His omnipotence is not in question. 
What is in question, ladies and gentlemen, is why it is that any man yields to his omnipotence. What is his mandate to rule? It's a question in essence of honor. That's what's at stake here, ladies and gentlemen. It's this, this question of honor is, is decided in a theater that just happens to be the soul of Job. A place where moral issues can be decided in the life of one of his people. Job. Now stay with me, guys. This thing is about to get, in my opinion, very, very rich. At least I hope it will. I hope it will be rich for you. Gang, I'm saying that Satan has that opinion of Job. And he has that opinion of you. And he will do the same thing to Job. Excuse me, to you as he does to Job over and over and over again. And as a part of the battle... Satan chooses an affliction and then whispers into our ears the temptation that if you want to get out of this this struggle that you're in, all you've got to do is disobey. And your problems will be solved and relief will come immediately. Just curse God and die. Gang, Satan says to God that Job only loves him because God gives him good things. The only reason that anybody ever follows Jesus Christ, says Satan, is because God gives them nice stuff. And if you take away the good stuff, in the opinion of the devil, nobody, nobody would ever love God for his own sake. And and furthermore, Satan doesn't think it's going to be very hard to convince us of that. That all we're going to have to, all he's going to have to do is strike us on a with some kind of blow. Some kind of unemployment or divorce or sickness or whatever. And we're going to all listen to those whispers. And when we do, it will be proved in the heavenlies that nobody fears God for himself. Gang, go back to this, this chapter one and, I, and, and think about how it is that the battle is, raid, is, is waged and fought. It was a battle basically in the heavenlies that played out in the life of Job. It was a battle between two inscrutable foes, one who has accused the other of something very dishonorable. That is that no man loves you, God. No man loves you for yourself. They only love you because you make their lives nice. And so what I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, that is part of the puzzle of suffering is this. Listen to me. That something goes on in the heavenlies. As you and I bear up under the difficulties that we face. There is a victory that can take place in the heavenlies. If we handle ourselves correctly. Gang, this may be a new thought for you, and I want you to see it because it is a rather esoteric thought. I want you to turn to the book of Ephesians real fast. We've got to hurry here. But I want you to see this in the New Testament, ladies and gentlemen. And it's, it's thrilling. I, I'm, I'm going I'm to jump right in the middle of a paragraph. So I'm in chapter 3 of, of Ephesians. Are you there? Feast your eyes 
on Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. Look at it. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Now, following that word known are two prepositional clauses, two prepositional phrases. The manifest wisdom of God is going to be made known. Look at the next prepositional phrase. How is it going to be made known? By the church. To whom? To the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the same two words that he uses later in this book in chapter 6 when he's describing the devil. How is it, says Paul to the Ephesian church, how is it that the manifest wisdom of God is going to be made known to the heavenlies? By you! By the church! Ladies and gentlemen, it's a strange text, I'll grant you that. But, but the church is a means by which a certain enlightenment takes place in the heavenlies. Gang, lessons, you, you are giving lessons to principalities and powers in the heavenlies. What happens to us here has bearings elsewhere. And that ought to help you, ladies and gentlemen. It ought to help you endure and persevere that knowing that the way that you handle your difficulty. Not only does it make a difference in the, your life and the, your family, it makes a difference in heaven. Because all the principalities and powers in heaven, they get to watch. And they get to see, for instance, the sovereignty of God that subjects His people to difficulty. They, they, they take note of the, of, the, of the grace of God which sustains us while we walk through it. The heavenlies and the principalities get to see the power of God as He brings us through it and out of it. The, the principalities get to see the sovereignty of God as He overrules all of our trials for our good. And ladies and gentlemen, they get to see, and maybe this is the most important of all. Maybe this is the most important. The principalities and the powers get to see that there are a group of people who love him so deeply that in the midst of their greatest despondency, in the midst of the lowest part of their lives, when things couldn't get any worse, they look up into heaven and say, Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. The principalities and powers step back and wonder. Gang, do you remember the story in the book of Daniel? Where uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I love to say those names, Shadrach, Meshach, and are thrown into the fiery furnace. Remember that? Remember they're thrown into the fiery furnace, and Nebuchadnezzar is watching. Remember? And do you remember what happens? Nebuchadnezzar steps back and says, wait a minute. Didn't we just put three people in there? I see four. And Nebuchadnezzar is overcome with wonder that God would walk with his people through their fiery difficulties. What I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, is that 
the heavenlies, they get to watch as the heavenly Father walks with his people through their, death, through their difficulties. And the heavenlies are absorbed in wonder that their God, that that God would do that for his sinful people. Ladies and gentlemen, it matters. It matters how we suffer. It matters here. And it matters there. I gotta show you one other thing and then we gotta quit. You gotta see this. Find in your Bibles Isaiah 63. You got to see this, ladies and gentlemen. You got a pen, you got to underline it. This is great. Isaiah chapter 63. One and a half verses is all I'll read. Verse 8. For he said, that is, God said, Surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their Savior. Now here it is. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. Gang, all of those things that batter us, all those things that upset us and stymie us and make us cry, all of those blows that are pounded on us by the evil one, somehow afflict him too. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. Gang, I know what you would like for me to do is say, just tell me why my child was born like that. You would love for me to tell you why did my marriage end up the way that it ended up? Why did I lose my job? Why did... 3,500 people get killed in the Twin Towers. Why did this happen? Why did that? And I want you to know, the book of Job never answers that question. But it gives us a piece of the puzzle. And a piece of the puzzle, it's this. Satan made an accusation against your Heavenly Father that the only reason that you're a Christian is because of goodies that you got. And he thinks that the only reason that any of us ever walk with God is because he makes our life nice. And so, the battle between God and the devil has been raging since the history of mankind. And it matters how you and I Respond. Because through the victory of Job, the devil was silenced. But what about that which is playing out in your life? What does it prove? Does it prove that Satan was right? 
Our Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that your people might be nourished on it, that they might see that something bigger than us is at stake, that uh, your glory is is uh, involved in the way that we handle our difficulty and our pain and our sorrow. And I pray, Lord God, in the midst, of, I pray for my brother and my sister who is aching in their souls right now. I pray that you will tell them that though the pain is great, that it matters the way that they handle it. And it matters not only to them, it matters in all of heaven. And I pray, Lord God, that you will, by your grace, sustain us all in the midst of walking through a life that is a veil of tears. Now, Lord Jesus, meet us at this table. Might it be the place where we renew our commitment to Jesus Christ. Might it be the place that as we reflect on the death and sufferings of Christ, that our souls might swell in praise and adoration. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name.